We are twin brothers who grew up Atari, or as we call it, in the vertical blank. Technically, the vertical blank is the space between the last line of the current frame and the first line of the next, where off-screen calculations create a cathode ray tube display. It exists, literally, between the lines, invisible, yet all-seeing, in a void where magic occurs that is never seen, only experienced. It is the figurative location of our existential longing for the past and attempts to bridge it to the present and the future. The vertical blank is an omniscient force containing the nuances that make our nostalgia a reality. It's the transcendental location that holds our best memories, biggest joys, greatest fears, and our most terrible losses. You've been warned. You can stop this tape now and turn around. For once you've entered, there may be no escape. All the scan lines have been written. It's time to enter the vertical blank. Into the vertical blank. Into the vertical blank. Hi, welcome to Into the Vertical Blank, Episode 5, Asteroids Part 2. In this episode, we begin kind of where we ended in the last episode with 8-Bit Jeff reading a story about how important Asteroids was to his life and career. This is called All Appointments Life. All appointment life. Large rocks, hard labor, boulders, classically a Sisyphusian task. Push them up a hill to only have them fall back down. But rocks in space? Filling my headspace, a virtual space. Destroy one, it breaks into two more. Destroy those, and they birth yet two smaller cores. More to remove, more to destroy, until the last one, a satisfying endeavor. Blast them all, and the screen fills up again. What? This is an Atarian task, a cathartic quest to pulverize planet pieces, but a fully Atarian task, an Atarian task in a virtual space, a virtual space that fills my vertical blank. Clearing screens of rocks was the first real control I experienced in my childhood entertainment, and maybe, just maybe, the first real control over life itself. 
As a 9 or 10 year old, I had so little actual control over my life. No 10 year old really does. But in the late 70s and early 80s, we had even less control than some people might imagine or remember. One telephone line on top of the TV in the living room. All calls monitored, not by the NSA, but by the DAD. One TV, maybe color, maybe black and white. Seven channels, maybe a few more if you had UHF, possibly on or select TV. You had to be in the room to see the show at the time it was on. Or poof, it was gone. You had to wait for a rerun, if at all possible, or wait years for a local channel to pick it up as a syndicated show. That was our DVR, syndication and reruns. The only control over these was passive. The only information analog, the printed TV guide. All appointment viewing, all appointment entertainment, all appointment childhood, all appointment life, all appointments that parents and others could control. School, scouts, sports, chores, finances, all by appointment only. Not like the playdates of today, because we ran virtually free, but limited by financial, time, and technology restrictions. Not that we understood or cared at the time, but the lack of knowledge didn't mean that subconsciously we weren't looking for control of some type, some manner, something that was ours individually, all appointments, all appointment life. Outdoor and board games were controlled by two or more people, rules set up and followed. Baseball, football, soccer, even large ditchum games and hide-and-seek followed by a set of group-determined rules. No one child had complete control over his entertainment. Music, TV, movies, books, radio, all passive mediums. The controls over a small selection of what was on offer, but no interaction, no control. Appointment television, radio, even music was played in an order it could be changed but interacted with not really you had the order the band or musician put the songs in they printed the lyrics in that order and really they wanted you to follow their order by appointment you didn't have to but we were not built for interactive interaction we were built to follow the path well traveled don't deviate what fun could come from that want to see the greatest space blaster film of all time Good luck if you miss Star Wars Empire at the theater. The most prominent films of our childhood, only by appointment viewing. All appointment entertainment. All appointment life. Intel asteroids. Asteroids? Asteroids? Asteroids. By appointment rock blasting with cathartic control. I first heard of the game when a kid on the schoolyard said his brother had turned over the machine at Straw Hat Pizza. What? Our minds were formed in such a manner at that age that I thought he meant the kid actually picked up the machine and turned it over, revealing the tender underbelly of the magical wires and electronics. Of course he meant that this unnamed teenage brethren had rolled the score over from 99,999 back to zero. A youth soccer end-of-season party took Steve and I to that same Straw Hat location, and in it I experienced Nirvana. 
I don't think I did anything but play and watch people play Asteroids that day. I was hooked. I was in awe. I was, well, terrible, to say the very least, at this wonderful glowing white vector masterpiece. And even while I was pushed out of the way by bigger kids as they perfected their saucer hunting schemes to rack up scores, I didn't feel a loss of control. Move aside. The pros are gonna play. I felt like I gained something. Maybe something spiritual. The game satisfied some internal mental need to keep things cleaned up, organized, and controlled. Not just entertainment, but freedom. I was complicit in allowing the control that the trigonometry-based vector shooter had over me, but also freed by the nature of its malleable play. So simple, yet so difficult. This electronic task was enough to make me pour quarter after quarter into the machine in an attempt to just earn one extra ship at 10,000 points. Of course the game was built with rules, but you could play in any way you wanted. No one could tell you how to clean up the screen. No one had to tell you to watch out for the small saucer. It was an appointment with the ship of death if you didn't move and thrust and fly, and be free in that virtual space. Appointment maybe? Control, yes. I would always have a go at the machine if I could find it in the arcade, laundromat, grocery store, or liquor store. It's funny that as kids we thought nothing of spending copious amounts of time in a liquor store playing video games, buying packs of Star Wars cards, and guzzling bubble up and root beer. We would even tell our parents that we were going to the liquor store. Nowadays, we would probably have been put in a youth home for just stepping into a liquor store at age 11. Back then, the local liquor store was the hub of teen and preteen activity. Appointment play at a controlled adult establishment. We weren't there for the alcohol or other adult vices. I guess some kids might have been, but we weren't. It was our local carnival with games, candy, soda, and adventure. But this also gave us control. Video games were the entry into this world of spending what little pocket cash we had on snacks and kid stuff in a place usually reserved for adults and their own vices. We controlled the spending, we controlled the games, and I specifically controlled the ship. The liquor store had asteroids, and in asteroids I had the control, being one of the few of my friends who actually used the thrust button. That gave ultimate control over the 2D simulated space. The ability to thrust, letting the inertia take you in one direction while spinning and shooting in another. Appointment play, inertia action, rock clearing catharsis, brotherly bonding, a rack of Frito-Lay to the right, and a case of faux Cuban cigars to the left. In an adult organized establishment, there were lines of kids' quarters across the game marquee as a sign-in sheet for appointment playing. Don't see your quarter up on that marquee. After Asteroids proper arcade version, I poured quarters into Asteroid Deluxe, Space Duel, and to some extent Sinistar and Blasteroids. I remember going to a save-on drugstore and purchasing Asteroids in late 1981 for the 2600 and playing it non-stop for weeks on end. I played classic versions on the Atari 800 as Mindstorm on the Vetrix and as 3D Asteroids on the 7800, as Megaroids on the Atari ST, played in the eras when those machines and versions were vibrant and new. Games brought to those machines by appointments and schedules and developers 
and distributors. Boulder Busting Madness. Controlled Meteor Crushing, written by 6502 and 68000 Genius, with full mastery over the bits and the bytes, the accumulator, the stack pointer, and the XY registers. I wanted that control. I wanted to blast the virtual bits and nibbles and words, to be the real Silicon Warrior, with full control over the machine, down to the metal. But my education was in databases and COBOL. Appointment education. My game coding and basic was not in mature bit-blasting languages, but ones too high level to produce anything worth playing. In years that followed, I would find myself playing Asteroids on Windows Arcade, MAME, PlayStation, in retro packs, plug-and-play devices, and everything in between. The blasting clearing, trying for a saucer hunt just to be blown up, and then blasting some more. The cathartic, controlling, clinging conundrum of brilliance to compensate for the complete mess that adult life had become. Control. For my entire life, I had been on a quest to make the perfect Asteroids game. At least the perfect one for me. Never having the proper coding skill or math chops to make an adequate version of this beguiling, boulder blasting brain twister. I was now being controlled by appointments, at work, at home, with a new wife, in my coding endeavors, everywhere, appointments, car loans, weddings, dinners, life, the need to provide. Those were the adult controlling appointments. Games were a blur, an afterthought. Coding, no longer fun, but a means to an end. I got through Web.0 with my SQL, Perl, and C skills, and then Flash with this ActionScript 2, and then ActionScript 3 arrived. Control. I ignored some of my regular job duties to fully embrace and enhance my game development skills. Control. Then one day I decided I needed to make asteroids. Make asteroids. Yes, finally, I needed to make asteroids. And this became the next feat that I would attempt to accomplish to change my career away from systems and business analyst to game developer, an appointment with full control over screen rendering. This was the height of the Flash game craze in the mid-aughts, about 2005 to 2010. Up to that point, my experience in making games was limited to simple puzzle and word games on the Atari 800 and BASIC, GFA BASIC and STOS on the ST, and C++ in Unix and on the PC. I had used Flash to make some interactive Barbie and Hot Wheels activities for my job at Mattel, but these hardly fill the arcade blasting bill of goods that my brain associated with making a good game. A real game. A game that I would have wanted to play on the ST-800 or 7800. A game with loads of explosions, extra weapons, boss battles, and a real ending. I had wanted to make an Asteroids game of my own ever since I borrowed graph paper from my dad in 1979 and started to plot out the worlds of wonder in my nine-year-old head. I wanted to create a game I could control, a blaster, a retro blaster. So that's what I named it. Working with a friend of mine, Mark, who was an excellent graphic artist, I took control of Action Script and Flash. I broke down Flash's programming language, Action Script, to its core, and built it back up as one of the first ever full soft sprite Flash 
rendering systems that relied on memory intensive but ultra fast bit plane blitting to the screen. Yes, just like the Amiga. I had explosions and blobs all over the place. And while it did slow down in some places, it ran much better than I could have ever imagined. And much better than anything I'd ever seen Flash do before. Retro-blasting, badass, boulder-busting, triple-photon-fighting action against the evil Arata and his 32 levels of rocks, spacecraft, bosses, and denizens. The game I wanted to make, but not the game people wanted to play. It was my personal triumph. It was awesome, to me at least, but virtually no one ever saw it. Well, a few people did. But, like much of my life, I either did things too early or too late. This was both. What I gained in control over the code, I lost in control over distribution. This was Flash. A few million players did play Retro Blaster, and I earned a little cash from ads and licenses, but it was hardly the hit it could have been. The hundreds of millions of plays that some games received just a year or two later racking up serious license fees were not to be for Retro Blaster. It was too early for the real retro craze to be in full swing, so Flash game sites didn't know what to make of it, and in time, Flash would leave the web almost entirely and be replaced with animated GIFs and HTML5. An appointment with the publishing world, awesome, angry words on paper, Consuming, controlling, creating a way for others to use the magical mystery of rendering replicas of rocks while relying on repurposed ideas for my retro youth. So like anyone who can't do, I decided to teach. Steve and I wrote an entire book published by A-Press and Friends of Ed on optimized Flash game development. And of course, it contained an Asteroids-like game. This time, sort of retro blaster, but on a scrolling playfield. It was beautiful. It was a massive undertaking, and it was published and released about one month before Steve Jobs declared Flash dead. An appointment with the iPhone? While Steve Jobs' decision not to let Flash on the iPhone was probably sound in hindsight, it hit us hard. Although our book sold well and made us money, again, it was not the hit that we'd wanted it to be. But this was just another rock to blast, a huge one at that, a mammoth behemoth to surmount. But I'd been through this since I was nine years old. Just put another quarter on the game marquee, wait my turn, study the best players, and they get my chances to let inertia control in one direction while I fired all my guns in the other. Eventually, Steve and I would go on to release two versions of an HTML5 canvas book a year later. Obviously, to demonstrate the power of the canvas, what did I create? Asteroids in JavaScript. And where could it be played? On an iPhone. The book is still on sale, still paying us royalties every month, and still helping me to get cathartically cleaned up, organized, and in control. I have not written a game in almost six years. Well, nothing significant, at least. But now that I have control over 6502 Assembler on the Atari 800XL, I might just have an appointment with Asteroids one more time. This will be an Atarian task, a beautiful, satisfying, but ultimately Sisyphusian cathartic Atarian task. I control the bits, the bytes, the nibbles, the accumulator, the XY registers, the stack pointer. I control the missiles, the players, the soft sprites, the display list. And yes, I control 
the vertical blank. It's an Atarian task in a virtual space, a virtual space that fills my vertical blank. We did just listen to my story. I really liked your story, Jeff. It was like a freeform jazz odyssey. Um, mine's a freeform jazz odyssey. Yours is more like um, uh, a Spinal Tap hit. Yours is like Into the Vertical Blank Mark II. Um, Puppet Show and Into the Vertical Blank. There you go. Puppet show and into the vertical blank. I think I, I think I like that. Well, let's first discuss the origin. I really liked it, though. I really liked it. Let's talk about the origin of your story first, since we didn't really get to talk about it any anything last time about uh, it. So my story was from part one of this episode, named Escape to the Asteroid Zone, and that was an absolutely 100% true story about us going to play asteroids when we were kids. I tried. The only thing that wasn't true in that story was the name of the bully, because I didn't want to say his real name. Um, yes, I know. I know who Curtis is. So basically, it was true stories of you and I going up to the a shopping center that was roughly a mile and a half from our house, and there there was a McDonald's. A liquor store. Okay, there was a guild drugstore, which was actually much more than a drugstore at the time. It was small, but it was almost like a craft store and a drugstore, and it was a hardware store all mixed into one, and a pharmacy. It was like a mini Walgreens. And then so there was that... a Safeway, and there's a Safeway, and then there's our bank. In there, there were at least three places that had video games all the time to play arcade games, starting in about roughly. 80 to 85. Yeah, between 1980 and 1985. Track and field was there for a little while afterwards. I'm not sure how long it was. So I want to say that, like, Star Castle also would fit into um, Escape to the Asteroid Zone. It was there as well. Uh, I could have just as easily written about that, except it wasn't the first game that I really played like Asteroids. But Star Castle definitely became, you know, another obsession up there. Actually, that was a... That story was kind of a discovery because I've written half of it 10 years ago for our website and so many things have happened in the interim time you know I always wondered why Atari was so important to us as kids and because it really shouldn't be I mean why do we care that much about Atari right like why is that important I mean why does it chips as important as Atari, or why is it, you know, <laughs> Hot Wheels or Frisbee or something, you know, like, there's 
they're all things from the past. They're all things we, 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 you know, we have fond memory of. Well, it's all as important, Atari is as important to us as the Nintendo is to the Nintendo generation. And I think it's because... But I, but I, don't, I don't agree with that. I think it's more important. Like, I don't want to put this just in the context of video games. That's, that's what I'm trying to say. Like, this is not just... It wasn't just the context of... Because the context of video games seems so trite. Well, I'm still... I, I have a point to make, too, about that. I understand what you're okay, saying. Go. No, go I, I was saying that... It seems so far away between 1979 and 80 and really when the NES was big, which was about 86, 87 through maybe 88 or 89. It seems... Oh, no, that went, that, the NES was still going to like 93. Well, and so was the Genesis. I know that. But what I'm saying is it seems... It always seems in hindsight that things were much further away from one another But when you're because when you're in it... It seems like a huge, a long amount of time. But when you go back and watch a TV show made in 1982 or a TV show made in 1990, I can't tell the difference. Now, I'm just saying, based on today's what the production values, I can't see the difference. So, what I was just saying that like the, it was so the um, video games went away and came back and were just as important to the eight and nine-year-olds who started with the NES as they were to the eight and nine-year-olds that started with the the 2600. But I don't think it was any further than that. The NES actually just restarted again. Video games almost started again. Um, not the computers and not the Commodore 64 or the ST or the Amiga. Those were always still around, especially in Europe, but a lot here, especially with the Commodore 64 and the TI-99 and all those, and the Ataris. They're all here. But... When you come to pure video games, it restarted, and that generation wasn't that different from our generation, purely because cable TV may have gone from 20 channels to 50, right? And But there still wasn't the renaissance of TV and entertainment still had not happened. That's all I want to say. Well, okay, so what I was going to say is this, that the, you're right, the difference between an episode of Chips from 1978 and an episode of Airwolf from like 1986. You can't really tell the difference. In fact, I would I would suggest that Chips looks better. Hey, nerdy, nerdy, nerd twins. I'm back. Did you miss me? I didn't miss you very much, but thanks for the spine-tingling stories of you walking to the shops to buy crisps and play video which Amahus it's. And 8-Bit Jeff, um, let's not even get started with whatever that was we just heard from you. My ears may need hazard pay. Okay, on to the first fix. While, 8-Bitter Steve is correct, Airwolf did end its run in 1986, it actually started in 1984. The Chips television show ended in 1983, so while you are right, there was no overlap, they were closer together than it might seem. Wait. Did I just make 8-Bit Jeff's point about things seeming to be further away than they actually were seem more viable? Let's just forget I said anything at all, why don't we boys? We'll call this one even. The context of it, you you, want, you were talking about the context of it outside of video games, what it meant to us as... Well, <laughs> so, I was, so I was thinking, 
what is important about asteroids? It could have been any. It could have been Atari hadn't made asteroids, and it was some other game by some company by by Nintendo, right? It was an, if Nintendo arrived with Super Mario Brothers in the front of the Safeway supermarket in 1979, that would have been our obsession. It, it, it had to do more with there being something to escape to than exactly what it was. Um, your story is something about mastery about clearing the screen, which is true, and there's also a whole set of mastery to a game like Super Mario Brothers that is equally like finishing the level, collecting all the coins, finding all the secret areas. That's very much the same type of thing. So if, let's say this, I did, we did know about the 2600, things like that. But if Namco or Cinematronics had been the Atari and I had, and the first cartridge that came out for their video computer system was either Star Castle or Galaxian, I would have had the same reference point. One, they're both... To me, they both are similar. Okay, one, uh, Star Castle, you have the freedom of movement. Um, and you also have this cleaning up job you need to do with the guy in the center. Galaxian... Much, much harder. Much harder. Galaxian, you did slide... It was a slider, you know, a horizontal slider and shooter. But there was this... And I could hear the, the sounds in my brain right now because I just recorded them yesterday. It had to do with cleaning up the screen too and just trying to get that last guy to get to the next screen. And I remember you and I and Eric Barth being incredibly excited about three specific things when we went up there. The three things were getting an extra ship in asteroids or shooting the middle of the Star Castle. Or clearing one screen of Galaxian. Any one of those three things could have if one of those companies had pulled off making a home console that had that same feeling just like we had with Asteroids Cartridge on the 2600. Your story goes on to tell the next chapter of Asteroids, which is the idea that after, after you played it and were obsessed with it, you ended up becoming a game developer and wanting to make your own version of it. I wanted right? to make asteroids, exactly. Um, but it's and almost like the Brady, almost like Mr. Brady who designs the same house every time. I pretty much made asteroids over and over again until I was sick of making asteroids. Sure, but here's my <laughs> point, okay? So kids were born in 1979 and they were nine years old when they played Super Mario Brothers for the first time. And then have grown up and created all these indie games that are basically Super Mario Brothers Plus, right? They're all types of games that are the um, platform games that, you know, they're very unique, but they're all their take on, I believe, trying to recreate that magic of playing that game for the first time in their own way. It's exactly the same as you writing every version of Asteroids. <laughs> now, I agree. I agree. And, you know, I love Miss Pac-Man, and I made a Pac-Man game, too, with... Too. We'll get to that some other day. In my story, I said it was it, it was awesome to me, right? And so what I right. mean is, I like to take that original idea and add to it. It's the same thing you did with the games. You actually got to make arcade games a little bit for um, your job, which was the track mod and some of those, some of the other ones. Where where I never did really. I I did make a Hot Wheels Asteroids game. It, it was a it came free with something. 
Yes, the helicopter one. And I made a cool helicopter. I actually like the helicopter a lot. I like that one a lot, by the way. But, so I agree. And so, but, so the difference between our stories really is, and both of them are 100% true, by the way. So there's Wait, no... Well, there's one thing that's not true in yours. And I want to say that you did this for effect. Um, and it makes sense in your story because it's a free-form stand-up poet jazz odyssey. Oh, okay, yeah. That Asteroids was never in the liquor store. But it, you, your point about the liquor store was all true, except that was Defender and Tempest and Track and Field. Those are the yes. games that were there. It wasn't necessarily Asteroids, but, but you're, the feeling of it was absolutely true, that why the hell were we in the liquor store, right? There's no reason for us being nine years old, eight, seven years old, going to buy Star Wars cards there when we were eight, seven or eight years old. Yes. And going in and asking for cigar boxes from the guy behind the counter. To store and, the cards. And him giving us a cigar box and me sniffing the box and understanding how much I like the smell of cigars. That's wrong. Okay? There's something wrong about that. There's all kinds of, like, zero tolerance violations in that <laughs> right there. But, yeah, I mean, it, it was a different time and it and it was the it was the type of entertainment that we had available to us, especially when we were actually behind in the entertainment that was going around, right? So going up to the liquor store, playing the video games, buying the, the bubble up and the other sodas and snacks gave us that freedom, not just not just what I'm trying to encapsulate inside playing and, and, and thrusting around. And, and what I like to say is, you know, the inertia takes you one direction while you're firing in the other, right? It's just sort of, that's the... Yeah. To me, that's the ultimate freedom. It also meant that we had the freedom to spend our cash, whatever little cash we had, whichever way we wanted to. The Seven Eleven like was right down the we, street. The minute we left the house, we were free to do whatever we wanted to. Right. Because our parents were basically looking the other direction. And they didn't want to. And mom wasn't like mom. Mom said, you know, don't be home. She was probably worried the entire time we were gone. But she was smart enough to know that. She did that as a child. She had a lot of time on her own, and the only way she learned anything about the world was by doing that herself. And and so she allowed us to do that, too, and she knew we were... There was a time when somebody, one of our friends, made a mistake, and then she probably lost trust in us, and it wasn't anything we did. But um, but that was was back when we were 15 or 14. But between, you know, 9 and... 13 she it was it was okay you know she trusted what we were doing and would allow us to to um do what we needed to because she couldn't make all the fun for us basically she, she had no capacity to do that yeah she was she was uh she was distracted from those things but that's okay so i want to say that i really enjoyed your story and what i liked about it was it it is totally different from what i was doing from what i wrote but but even though it's totally different, it ha- definitely has, you know, to me, I understood it fully, you know, the, the whole idea about making something. You know, I remember that whole time about you working on Retro Blaster and the point you made about it being too early. It was. Nobody cared about retro involved yeah. games at the time. Nothing existed. This is before um, Geometry Wars. Yeah. People understood what it was. I think we called it something else. We we someone called it retro evolved. We called it post retro yeah, on our blog. We were like, called it post retro, right? Retro games. It's Pac Man, 
Championship Edition was one of them, and, and there were a few games, on, and that might have come after, but I, I have to go back and look at the exact dates that things came out. But definitely, no one was doing retro stuff at all. Everyone was doing some sort of Aki's pseudo, like, modern graphics. Even things that, think, anything that looked even 16-bit was like old hat. Like, no one really wanted to have that. It all had a very modern look to it, and probably because the web... Web 1.0 was still pretty hot and pretty new, and people were still trying to learn like what web design was and should look like. And to it kind of inject retro into that, it wasn't the time for it. No, because, it. yeah, that's 100% correct. You didn't go retro when retro was only 10 years relatively, 10 years before, yeah. meaning 95, right? So the the you didn't get a... a a PlayStation really in the in the mind's eye of people which had pretty rudimentary but good 3D graphics until the late 90s. I know PlayStation 2 came out, you know, in about 2000. I, I have to doesn't I'll look that up. I'll have I'll have yeah, the the producer look up the I dates. My, my original PlayStation in 96. Yeah. <laughs> The original PlayStation was released in Japan in early 1994 and in the USA in late 1994. The PlayStation 2 was released in summer 2000 with the original PlayStation being re-released as the PS1. That is now Emily 100 million and 2 and Nerd Boys 2. Scoreboard fellas, scoreboard. And I got mine in 97. Exactly. Well, the first when you I got Windows 3.1 came out, and the one of the first things that Microsoft did, which was incredibly smart, but it was so hard to find things like this at Fry's. But they one of the upgrades for Windows 3.1 was, and it wasn't an upgrade, but it was a game pack was Windows Arcade, which was a bunch of Atari games, Asteroid Centipede. I, I don't I forget which ones are in there. All not emulated but redone almost arcade yeah, perfect and um and that was my favorite thing for a long time it was like the one games pack that i had that played in windows besides yeah i think i remember that was uh, uh bill gates love tempest and so they made that and i believe it was pong asteroids missile command tempest and one other uh you know I don't know. Centipede. Yeah. Released in 1993 on a single 1.44 megabyte floppy disk was Microsoft Arcade. It was for Windows 3.1 and Macintosh. It contained Tempest, Battlezone, Asteroids, Centipede, and Missile Command. It was followed up with Return of Arcade in 1996 and Revenge of Arcade in 1998. Let's be frank here though, boys, by that time MAME had just come out and no one was buying those last two. And yes, Centipede was in there. Then very... Yeah, well, I, can, I can look at it. We'll have, we'll have the producer... Yeah, uh, producer Emily will come in and, and tell us where we're wrong. But um, also, the next one to come out, Williams. So Williams had the oh, Defender yeah, yeah, the Williams Defender and Robotron. 
Joust, Stargate. Joust, Stargate, right. So, and those are games that are incredibly difficult. So it's like it, it, it bumped up the difficulty from the Atari games, which were difficult, up like 10 notches. So anyway, we're um, this was about asteroids. And um, if we want to step back a second, we stopped at the Atari 2600 version of asteroids when we were discussing games that we had played. But there are more versions no, of Asteroids. No we, no, we stopped, sorry, in the last one, we stopped after the Metrix. Mindstorm, mind, mindstorm on the Metrix. Right, okay, so then the next version of Asteroids we would get to play on a home machine would have been Atari either Atari, Atari 7800 3D Asteroids, which later became Asteroids, which is an absolute triumph. <laughs> With the two-player competitive and playing together to blow stuff up mode. Yeah, it's a beautiful And game. it's probably my favorite version of Asteroids. If I could figure out how to... Contr- I want to set it to play on a gamepad. Because I still, with Asteroids, love the four sets of keys. Instead of having the arrow keys and thrust be the up key. I rem- you know, I like to play... Four buttons, not a joystick. Yeah. Right. Left turn, right turn, thrust and fire, plus hyperspace, but we all know that's evil and no one would actually want to use it. So there were four buttons plus the fifth one, and that was a big thing for us, because I believe on the on the Atari 8 bit we could replicate those keys. I don't remember being able to use the keys, although I'm pretty sure we no, could. No, wait a minute, maybe it was on Megaroids. So, was so uh, I was able to change the Megaroids key, so now we're going to the Atari ST. And the, and the reason I love Megaroids so much, it came free on a Mega Max CD. So Megaroids came free on a Mega... It was a demo of how to program a game in Mega Max C, and it came on the Mega Max C disc. Of course, I never learned to program anything in Mega Max C, but we had, we had Megaroids. Megaroids was an Atari ST game that was in medium resolution, a four-color resolution, but it looked absolutely fantastic, especially on the Atari ST monitor. And it was basically asteroids. Uh, colorful asteroids. Each each screen had a different Wait, color. Wasn't there also one on the monochrome monitor, too? Could you make it run on, in monochrome? It would work in monochrome monitor, too, I'm pretty sure. So I think Megaroids would run on both. But it wouldn't run in low res. And Megaroids allowed you to change the keys to whatever you wanted. And so I changed them to the keyboard... I'm going to say it was Z and X and shift and question mark. It was something like that that allowed me to replicate the arcade. And for a long time, that was the definitive version of Asteroids at home because oh, yeah. you had the keys correct. I would say after that, I'm, I'm pretty sure we had Asteroid. We had an arcade pack for the Lynx that included Missile Command and Centipede. But I know Asteroids no. did come out for no, it. No, 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 we never owned that. But it does exist. The Lynx has a version of Asteroids. And this will together, and the Asteroids is fairly decent for that. I mean, like every other game on the Lynx, it's good. Yeah, all the Lynx games are great. I'll have to play that um, a little bit in emulation because our Lynx currently doesn't work. There's a no, multi. I played it on the Raspberry Pi. That was good. There's a multi cart for the Lynx that's out now, so I may want to find another Lynx and drop all the ROMs on there to play. But the Lynx it does hurt my hand and my eyesight because I'm old now. But yeah. Uh, wait, wait a minute, the 7800. So we kind of kind of glossed. No, over it was that. 3D so asteroids. 3D asteroids is is awesome, 
if it came out in 1984 instead of 1986 after Nintendo was big, I'm not sure it would have made such a big impact because it was the same game. I mean, besides the two-player mode, which is great, two-player simultaneous mode, I mean, it's essentially Asteroids. There's still nothing added to it, which to me is the most frustrating part when we're talking about Atari's efforts. They would upgrade the graphical look of their games, but, but really not add anything to the gameplay itself. Well, they okay, they they would add... I'm sorry for interrupting. They would add to the game play in the sense that they would put two-player competitive play in. And they switched out the the hyperspace for shields automatically. But they didn't add any other elements to the game like you're saying, right? There weren't other ships that didn't thrust on a full screen, scrolling screen, anything like that, right? Yeah, I mean, like, like I would think that the next level is a Bostonian esque asteroids game where where you're flying, where you're scrolls. And, but but when you, but when I say that, I imagine how hard that would be because Bostonian and a game like Time Pilot, you you're centered on the screen the whole time. There is no there is no physics, so you would have to do all the scrolling as the physics instead of the ship scrolling. And I think that would just that would be very weird. Yeah, I understand what you're saying. Any other version of Asteroids you want to talk about that we actually played? I know that I played Asteroids on that that Microsoft um, pack for the Windows. I did obviously play the Asteroids that came that was put out for both the PC and the PlayStation. The Activision one. The Activision That's one. Activision. That's actually pretty good. But here's let's go back a step back a set. Atari games. The coin-op division of Atari, that's, that kind of was still, I believe, in the same location that they were when they were making games in the, in the 70s. They made a game called Blasteroid, made by some of the same guys who worked on Asteroids. So it wasn't like, it was a spiritual successor, but it was all bitmapped instead of using a vector XY monitor. So it literally had a vertical blank. It did have a vertical blank. That's funny. I never played the arcade game. I only played the Atari ST version. So when I played it, it is it is spectacular for the time. I, I don't understand why it wasn't big, except there's some weird thing where you choose your different ship, and I think that, I don't like that, but I'd rather you upgrade your ship instead. Yeah, you have three ships. There are upgrades. There are upgrades in the game. Context, boys, context. Blasteroids. Designed by Ed Rotberg was released into the arcades in 1987 by Atari Games, with home versions for various computers released the same year by Imageworks. Honestly, I only understand a couple of those words I just said. It's not because I am not smart or good at maths. Yes again, it's maths, not math. But I digress, I don't care enough to look up what these silly sentences really mean. Um, you have three ships. The biggest, slowest one has the most firepower, and the smallest, speediest one has the less firepower. Pretty much, they try to make it logical, but logical isn't always fun. Yes. <laughs> what I remember playing Blasteroids, though, was on the Atari ST. I remember we bought a version. Um, I don't know who made it, um, and it was it was the, it was the frame rate was really choppy. It was like Ocean or something like that, and it was on a game, a pack of four other games. We would always, we would always get those game packs because 
for thirty dollars you get four, which were pre games that were all previously twenty five dollars a piece or something like that. And I, but I liked it. I remember being slow and me not like it. But the reason why I want to mention it is because the Lynx version of Asteroids later owes some something to to Blasteroids. So does the Asteroids from Activision. And that Asteroids actually came out on the Game Boy Color, too. And it's, it's, it's a pretty well-made game for the time. Like, it's, it's pretty well done. Some of the reviews are like, hey, this is cool, but it is just Asteroids. And they were right. I mean, it's like the late 90s. But it, it's still pretty good. There's nothing bad about it. There's a, there was something that came up for both the Commodore 64 and the Atari 800, which was the Asteroids emulator, which is almost a almost pixel-perfect, sound-perfect version of the Asteroids arcade machine. The high-res graphics on both the Atari 800 and the Commodore 64 and the Apple IIe are all identical. They are 320 by 192 or 300 by 192. I don't have it exact, but it's somewhere around those dimensions. And it is all in black and white, and, and some of those machines can actually do color in certain ways. But this one doesn't, and it looks almost like you're playing on a vector screen. The graphics are a little bit less, but that's a really nice version also to be played across the various 6502 machines. Um, and it's, it's purely out there in the wild. You can't buy it or anything like that. So Asteroids itself was not really redone. You know, it, it's it, it was, people remade it, and they even remade it with more levels and stuff. But really, it, it never really caught on past the original Asteroids. <laughs> but there were a couple of versions... That I remember that came out in the in the two thousands, um, and one was called Asteroids Revenge, which was which was in the in the era of viral flash games. It was one of these turn the tables games where you play the asteroid instead of the ship. Uh, which, yes, which I think is you know sort of a deconstruction it's, of asteroids. That's a fun that I era think... of games. These people spend a lot of time deconstructing things. I want to say that that, <laughs> that game reminds me a lot of Flash Game License, so I think that might have been a Chris Hughes or one of those guys who did it. Oh, it's it. one of those guys. Um, you know, I actually tried to contact them, but they're, you know, to talk about that game specifically. I don't think it was Chris Hughes. I think it was the other guy that was there. Yeah, um, I'm just, it just reminds me of Flash Game License, so I'm not 100% sure. Um, it, I know they, they're the ones who license it out. I'm not going well, to know if it was theirs. I think, actually, the guy Flash Game License made Asteroids Revenge 2, which was a ripoff of Asteroids Revenge that someone else made, which, of course, in itself, that story is epitomizes the Flash Game era where people just ripped each other off right and left. Yeah. And, and made money off of it. And for the fact that it was also a licensed property that they just, you know, built on top of, which is so semi-illegal, but that was sort of like the punk rock days. It was um, very much the punk rock days, and that's a little bit of my story there, too. It was the punk rock days of um, of indie games were those Flash game sites and Flash game license and all these sites that popped up, and a lot of people played on them, but a lot of people didn't. They didn't even know they existed. Yeah, they didn't even know they existed. And but they, I mean, just making games for it was very much like... Uh, an under-the-covers endeavor. It was a DIY, complete DIY thing, you know. I mean, even how you made money, uh, the licensing, everything. It was just... The viral ads. The viral ads. It was not respected in any way by, by the regular game industry. It wasn't even... There wasn't even indie game industry. I remember I wrote a, I, I wrote a blog about us developing those Flash games, and Gama Sutra picked it up because there were no other people blogging about making indie games. 
Right. Like, how come nobody blogs about making their games? <laughs> it's sort of an insane time that now that's all people do, right? It, you and imagine it was it was just over ten years ago when there was hardly anyone blogging about anything. You know, much less a podcast or something or a video, you know, YouTube video about making a game. Right. I mean, now people are like like coding via Twitch to, to get an audience for their game. You know, all day long they they um they they broadcast themselves as they build their game, right? Uh, and people watch this. And stuff. people watch it, but, right? It's a it's. There was, there was a time not too long ago when you know, and this was all from people building flash games on the web that it was a, a crazy free for all where people were building whatever they wanted to publishing whatever they wanted to stuff was going out viral people were making and making games on top of other games and borrowing licenses and stealing from here and and um it was a pretty amazing time that has been lost and glossed over by a lot of people which is very frustrating and i'm not saying that we were the head of it or on top of it we were just inside of it yeah and we're one of those games was retro blast yeah we were inside of it and um we never made huge amounts of money never had a huge license game but we were like one of those developers for the atari 800 that made a couple games and then fell by the wayside and these other guys were like activision and the activision guys moved on got purchased by activision right and now they're making the same viral flash games in c plus plus and trying to squeeze money out of grandma still on their phones so yes. um so it it did happen. It, it was it was a funny time to be there, and I think we'll, we'll have to do a lot more about that um, at some point. Maybe try to bring in some of the guys, but you know, most of those people are just gone. I mean, it's funny that the guy who ran Atari Little Green Desktop will not even answer my emails anymore. Richard, Richard Davy, who used to be the Atari ST guy now, and he went on to make his Phaser, which is a great HTML5 engine. A lot of people use it to make games, but he's so busy he doesn't even he he doesn't even answer emails or talk. So he going back to those times it was such a lean, scary time for all these developers. And if they did get their niche and they hung on, they hung on for dear life. And I'm not quite sure they want to talk about it yet. It's too close. It is still too close. It's still a little raw, you know, because all those people that making flash games were kind of obliterated by Steve Jobs, which is also in your story, right? Also it is. obliterated by the iPhone in a way that, like, was sort of, you know, like a nuclear bomb going off. Basically, almost, I don't, I, it could have even been on purpose, but in 2010, not 2009, I think the first iPhone came out. But when, but, and they tried to get... the iPad where, where, where it was coming out, where... Where Steve Jobs decided that he didn't want Flash the, was not going to be on it. Yeah, he didn't want Flash on it. And overnight, there was like this lull in the... And, but games are still being made and put up. But it the the amount of money that a good game like Balloons could make, those guys basically had to start going directly to the PC. Or they had to get it on Facebook. Where before they didn't have to do that. And that was the problem. And so they had to find a way to make it mobile-friendly. Balloon's perfect mobile-friendly game. Have to recode the whole thing to make it work, right? So that, that Flash game, right, you, you you did build my favorite game from the time, personally, which is Retro Blaster. Um, the, the only thing that I think needed to be improved in Retro Blaster were the, the menu controls. But yeah, the menu controls are awful. I, I understand. I, you know what? I, if I, But I have no... Put it this way. 
I had no need to go back and work on Retro Blaster. <laughs> so, so I was off into Action Script. That was Action Script Two when I blasted out all that stuff, and then I moved Action Script Three for the book. Um, and then I was able to make the you know uh, Pumpkin Man, which was my super um, to me super version of Miss Pac Man with thirty two mazes and trying to save. Princess Peach or whatever it was. We did some Gord. Whatever I don't know. I forget. I even forget my own game, and that had like doors and keys and transporters and all kinds of stuff, and to make it not just like Pac Man, but it was still just Pac Man, right? Um, and uh, there are a couple other games that, that that we did then, but it was all just to make the things that I wasn't able to make on the Atari. But yeah, if you that look, was the point. Like that's where I opened all the things I also wanted to build the Atari. I was able. It's really just yeah. me not being able to make them on the Atari or the 7800 or the ST. But now I can go back and look at that and I can say, you know what? You know, 6502 language, the actual 6502 language includes such so few actual opcodes. All you need to do is, and there's some un, unlicensed, unwritten ones or ones that aren't published that maybe break if you try to use it on Atari 800, things like that. But if you're coding on an NES, a, a, a Atari, an Atari 2600, 5200, 800, you have to at your disposal, and 7800, a way to make games that are as good as the Flash games that were there. And as good yeah, as the games yeah, that I, I wanted I'm to make. I'm really interested in building something for the 7800, because uh, I, I just like you know what you the, the amount of resources you have. Yeah, 700 um, basic is a place to start. Stoss is a place to start. Even the C the C compiler for the 800 is a place to start. But all of those eventually will lead you to wanting to make the games in 6502, so you can squeeze out even more stuff. So let's talk about the, the game that actually inherited what Asteroids should have done. Because, you know, again, Atari never evolved Asteroids the way it should have it should have gone. But I think, and, and I don't know the year this came out, it was sometime in the aughties. Yeah. Repeat after me. Google is my friend. Google would make Emily's life much easier as she edits these episodes. Google is my friend. Geometry Wars Retro Evolved was originally created by the Project Gotham Racing team to test out the original Xbox controller in 2003. It was released as a standalone Xbox Live Arcade game for the 360 in 2005. Geometry Wars. Geometry Wars, right. And I think that was for the original Xbox or the Xbox 360? I had it on... It was after Retro Blaster came out, because... People were not interested in retro games at all. So Geometry Wars was the first thing people were like, well, it kind of looks like retro. You know what? It came out after it came out after Retro Blaster for sure. Yeah, I had it on the 360 and on the Wii. So maybe it was sort of the Xbox 360. What was neat about about Geometry Wars was it took it, it took what Asteroids did and actually made it into a modern game. And now that we're on to like the fourth version or something, and I have it on the PlayStation. But here's here's my problem with it, and not that it isn't a great game. People think of it as a version of Asteroids or the way that game worked, but it's absolutely not because you never clear the screen and you shoot continuously. Right? It's a two. It's a it's a dual stick shooter where you control and fire. Right. And part of the beauty of Asteroids was was timing the shots and also clearing the screen. So while Geometry Wars looks like Asteroids, it looks like a spiritual successor, it's really not. It's a completely diff- diff- 
different game. But I think that nuance is lost on people who don't have asteroids crammed directly into their vertical plane. Yeah, they're not... So, the casual person who who um, who just likes the video game, right? And and that's great. And there's uh, there's nothing wrong with that, right? Absolutely. They nothing. don't have it's not it what it, it didn't they're not weird like me or you. And it didn't affect them in this intensely personal way that allowed them to have some control. It was a game they shot stuff on the screen. That's both in Asteroids way back when with most people who just wanted a high score, right? And in Geometry Wars, same thing really. There wasn't peep there wasn't everybody who had an intensely personal relationship with the video games they were playing. The people that did are listening to this podcast. Right? <laughs> exactly. They, there's something that, about their first intensely personal relationship is absolutely most of the time not just about the games. It's it's sort of it's it's sort of the idea of nostalgia, but nostalgia is such a terrible word because people think it's like nostalgia is like I'm just gonna I, you know I care more about these old things from the past than the new. But I don't think that's true at all. I think nostalgia is realizing that things are tied tied to something else in a way that's inextricable that you didn't realize. I didn't realize until I finished writing my story. That, that our love of Atari and asteroids came at a time that otherwise we may not have fallen in love with it. It may not have become an obsession. It, it filled a void that otherwise um, at another time wouldn't need to have been filled. And possibly it would, these things would have just been an also-ran. Right. And my whole, my whole goal of, of looking at the vertical blank and thinking about this sort of nostalgia is... Why? Why is it so important? Because it is important, you know, and it's hard to explain to people. They're like, well, it's just a stupid game. Well, yeah, it is actually just a stupid game. But there's there's a everything else about loving it and playing it and getting to it and getting a high score and being obsessed with it. That's not a game at all. That's real, honest life. And trying to explore what that honest life is and why it makes sense. I mean, you could do the same thing about a freaking baseball game if you wanted to. Like, I mean, actual baseball, like 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 the Dodgers. And I think um, we actually did up into a point where the Dodgers, and, and we were from Los Angeles, so the Dodgers and Angels both were very important to us. Even the Rams and the Raiders to some extent until they left. Dodgers and Angels, but baseball becomes, to me very slow and when you're yeah. a kid and you're listening to this fast punk rock music talk about stiff little fingers or early alarm songs or whatever it is you know midnight oil in their in their heyday or you know um suddenly metallica and guns and roses are on the scene in green day right i mean it's like i felt that same intensely personal relationship with collecting Soul Simon Husher do records as I did with getting Atari at the time. When I just want to point out that and everyone else who's out there that's doing a podcast about video games, don't let anyone say, "Oh, it's just a nostalgic podcast about video games." It might be on the surface, but that's not all it is. Especially for us, it the reason you're doing this, the reason we're doing it is it brings back something 
that can't be brought back in any tangible way without talking about it and exploring what the reasons are, what the reasons were and are, and why it's so important. Because I'm not doing a podcast about Legos, and I had Legos when I was seven, all the way until I was, I still have Legos, right? I mean, heck, we may do a podcast about Legos. So that was our big two-part discussion of asteroids. This is Steve back in Jeff's house, not on the phone, not on the scratchy international phone line. We're we're both talking into the blue ball, into the microphone. Yeah. Is that what that is? That's a blue, a blue ball, ball microphone. It's a blue ball microphone. So that was a big long discussion, and we were in all over the place. But I think we kept it pretty much in the vertical blank. It's squarely in the vertical. Squarely, blank. that's asteroids lives in the vertical blank. In my vertical blank. What about your vertical blank? Well, I mean, my whole story was about asteroids being in the middle of my vertical blank. So yeah, yes. are you going to um, make Retro Blaster available on the website? Yes. So I found an EXE that I created a while ago. In the show notes, there's a link to download Retro Blaster EXE. It's in a zip. It will play on a Macintosh in, or whatever. in Wine. <laughs> now, if you have Flash, you can still play it on the website, too. If you have Flash, and I found out that um, Windows uh, Edge... Microsoft Actually, Flash. I can drag Flash Swifts in and they'll play. Oh, that's cool. So, so there's a chance to play Swifts. It would be places. fun if anyone who's listening, and I don't know how many people are, like... Actually, got a high, if they got a high score, they took a picture of it or something. Yeah. A high score contest for Retro Blaster would be kind of fun just to get people to play it. I don't know if we have anything to give away. Maybe we'll we'll figure out what we I give have, away. I have about, behind you, I have like 300 Atari 2600 carts, of which if someone really got a high score... Just let them, like, what, what if they have a pick of the cart they want? Well, okay, I'll give, them the a list, I'll give them a list of carts that they could pick from. That's the Retro Blaster high score contest. Play the game. Tell us what you think, and send us a picture, high score, screenshot your high score, so we could uh, we'll see, we'll give away a prize. Right. So, Retro Blaster High Score Contest. That's great. Uh, coming up in this episode, which is a long one, and we're proud of having long episodes. Actually, we have two fantastic stories that were submitted to us, one by Shinto and one by Jim Fullerton. Now, Shinto said, "I have all those cards. I don't need them. We're giving away three cards for the person who had the best story." So. Jim wins the carts <laughs> by default. By default, but they, he's, a got, story, he's got a great like story anyway. So you know um, he would have been in the running, but Jim gets the um, the the carts. Jim Fullerton, and um, so those two stories are coming up, and then afterwards we will tell you about what we are going to do for the next episode. The next episode. Next up is a really, really nice uh, story by Shinto, who does the Jaguar Game by Game podcast. Thank you very much, Shinto, for sending this in. Growing up, I think you have three types of friends, three categories. There are friends that you choose, typically other kids at school. There are friends by proximity, kids who live nearby, same building, same street, whatever. And then there are friends by parental proxy. If your parents have grown-up friends who happen to have kids around your age, congratulations, now they're your friends. So run along and play while the grown-ups talk about grown-up stuff. In this third category, Kevin and Rebecca. Kevin was around the same age as my brother and I, Rebecca around the same age as our little sister. They had just built a house out in the country. Well, country then, I suppose, but now you might as well call it just outside the suburbs and on a busy highway. 
But we went to visit them in their new house, and this would have been around 1983, and they said, hey, Kevin has an Atari downstairs in the basement. Why don't you boys go and play Atari? Oh, my brother and I, our ears perked up, our eyes widened. Atari, yes, yes, let's go do that. So we went downstairs, and there on this desk in front of a little color TV was... Wait, what is that thing? That's not an Atari, not like ours. There's no wood grain, no metal switches, no cartridge port. But it says Atari there on the front. It's got the logo, it's got a keyboard, and it has four joystick ports along the front edge. To play a game, as it turns out, you have to open up a lid on the top and plug in a cartridge. But there are two cartridge slots, two? And the cartridges look nothing like ours. They're smaller and brown and have this metal back on them. Kevin plugged in Asteroids. And it looked similar to the Asteroids game that we already knew, the game which was, in fact, the first video game we ever played. Stepping back about a year, maybe a little longer, there was a display at Sears around the middle of the store, and this display had a Sears video arcade hooked up to a TV. If you use this black plastic box with a stick in the middle, you could move a spaceship around on that TV above your head, and... Pushing a button would shoot these big space rocks that would break apart when hit. Wow! My brother and I both had a turn. He went first, he was older and everything, but when it was my turn, I was able to blast away every little rock on the screen by spinning my ship around and spraying bullets as quickly as my thumb could tap the button. I found out, though, that after you do that, more rocks appear and you have to keep going. But not for me, my turn was over. So, Asteroids was our first taste of Atari, and we liked it. We got our four-switch Woody console in Christmas of 1982, and though Asteroids wasn't our first game, or second, or even third on the 2600, we did have this game and played it a lot before that trip to the basement in the house in the country. Two things stood out about what I later learned was the Atari 8-bit computer port of Asteroids as we took turns playing the game on Kevin's weird-looking Atari thing. First, this game was harder, and I don't mean just compared to the lame kids version on the 2600 that we played most of the time, I'm ashamed to admit, but the movement of the asteroids was different. They didn't start off in a vertical band that moved slowly across the screen like we were used to, but were instead all over the place. The big thing, though, the big wow factor, was the shields. Sure, you had shields on the 2600 in some game variations, but use them for more than a couple of seconds and you blow up. But here, you could use these shields as long as you want. This, this was astounding. This was the most amazing thing. We could overlook that all the asteroids were the same color and I think even the same initial shape because you had infinite shields. That and the fact that there was this whole other Atari that existed were our big takeaways from that visit. You could say that not only was Asteroids our introduction to Atari, it was also involved in our revelation that there was more to Atari than just the 2600 console we knew and loved. Atari had much more going on, a console that's also a computer, a different type of asteroids where the shields don't run out, and that might have sealed our lifelong love of the brand. Maybe. And if not, there's one more thing that certainly did the trick. That would be the Atari 7800, and perhaps the fourth game that we got for it, behind Pole Position 2 and Xevious and Dig Dug, and this was a new version of Asteroids. Deluxe Asteroids, as we thought it was called, had smoothly rotating rocks in multiple colors, a twinkling starfield background, and some occasional stereotypical spacey sounds that play. 
The lack of shields in this version was a bit of a bummer, but the cool hyperspace sound effects kind of made up for it. But most of all, Atari 7800 Asteroids gave us simultaneous multiplayer, a feature that I didn't even know I wanted, but now seemed so obvious and essential that no Asteroids should be without it. My brother and I played cooperative Asteroids on the 7800 almost as much as we did the alternating player modes on the 2600 so many years prior. It was great fun, and still remains as one of my all-time favorite 7800 games. Xevious and Dig Dug, which came before it, are great, but the 7800 really took off for me when we played co-op Asteroids for the first time. There's a Lynx version, Super Asteroids, I haven't played that one very much. Bought it for my brother for his birthday many, many years ago. And on the Jaguar, the homebrew game Rebooteroids fills the Asteroids gap in style. There's some rock-blasting goodness available behind each Fuji logo that you might want to plug in. It's kind of a weird coincidence that at my introduction to Atari, my exposure to the computer line, and the solidification of my fandom with the next generation of Atari consoles, Asteroids was right there at each step at the forefront. I don't really hold the game in any special reverence, to be honest. It's not one of the games that I come back to very often these days, especially given all the other options, all the hundreds of games that I own for various Atari systems. But I guess I can sort of blame Asteroids for all the hundreds of games that I own for various Atari systems. But, you know, no hard feelings. Yes, Shinto, you're correct. Asteroids deserves a lot of blame. A lot of blame. That was in my story, too. Um, <coughs> next up is a, another really nice story about Asteroids by Jim Fullerton. Hey, Bit Jeff and 8-Bit Steve, it's Jim, and I just got finished listening to your Atari Nerd episode, I guess it's uh, Season 1, Episode 3, and I just wanted to drop you guys a, a little audio submission. Um, really enjoyed the show, uh, enjoyed every show you put out so far, um, I hope you keep them coming, and it, it really, uh, it pegs my uh, nostalgia meter, as I, I told you on Twitter uh, earlier today. I uh, really, <laughs> I don't know how to explain it, it's just, uh, it really takes me back when I uh, listen to your show, it makes me, uh, you know, you're talking about some of the games, and it makes me think about the, uh, you know, those memories of your playing the games and stuff, uh, it kind of, like, fuels my uh, memory and gets the old memory banks going there and makes me think of things uh, from days gone by, so I'm glad that uh, you guys are here, and I'll listen to every episode, I really, I really enjoy the show. Um, I also saw that you guys are soliciting uh, stories of asteroids, about asteroids, uh, for your uh, next episode. So I thought I would uh, chime in with uh, my thoughts about asteroids. For me, asteroids, basically there are two uh, you know, different memories that I have, I guess. Uh, this whole thing's kind of based, for me, as far as the video games go, now when we're looking back at these uh, you know, 8-bit games now... It's all about the memories of the time and, you know, things that were going on or where you may have played or something like that. So that's kind of where things for me, when we talk about these games, they, they, uh, they lead me to. So I just want to kind of give you my take on how things uh, for me were, you know, involving asteroids. So as far as the arcade version, that would be uh, the first, you know, the uh, first part of things. 
I remember uh, playing Asteroids at a, it was a uh, Fisher Big Wheel, uh, like, like a department store. Uh, this would have back, been back in, back in early 1980-something. Uh, my mother, we, we lived in like a rural part, part of southwestern Pennsylvania, about 35 miles south of Pittsburgh. And so in my family, we, we went shopping on the weekend. So it was either go to the mall or go to the, uh, the local, you know, the department stores. And there's a little strip mall by my house. Uh, it was called Crossroads Plaza, and that's where this Fisher Big Wheel was located. And I can remember they had an Asteroids machine. For the longest time, they had that in their vestibule. And they also had a, a pinball machine, which I can't remember what, what machine it was. But I will remember this Asteroids machine. I remember playing, I've played Asteroids many other places. But when I, someone says, you know, mentions Asteroids, or you, you know, say, think about uh, arcade Asteroids, that's, that's what I think of. I think of standing in that vestibule while my mother was shopping and, um, you know, just playing the game. I didn't get very far in it. I wasn't that that great at it uh, I'd always get picked off by those pesky the uh, saucers I'd do pretty good until the small saucers started coming out and then I was pretty much you know done after that I didn't really make it you know too much further but one other thing um, this Fisher Big Wheel was in a strip mall that has other significance for me uh, it's the same strip mall that had had a Revco in it which is the place that I bought I can remember buying Bermuda Triangle and Journey Escape for the Atari 2600 out of their bargain bin. They had like a bargain games bin and I probably bought other things but I just specifically remember those two um, you know games that I had bought there. And also in the strip mall they had this little arcade it was called the uh, Magic Mushroom Arcade and it was real funky inside. It was like dark and they had like, uh, like fluorescent things painted on the walls and they had black lights and stuff like that and I'm sure there was a, you know a uh, bunch of nefarious stuff going on in the background, but I was just there to play the video game, so, um, and I was like, I don't know, maybe 11, 12, raised in the, out in the uh, rural area, so I, 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 you know, I was kind of oblivious to that type of thing, so I was just there to play the games, and I can remember playing Tempest there, and I remember playing Battlezone, like, there, and for me, the, this is the thing with these, with these games, it's, I, I will have like a specific memory about certain things and for me like the asteroids it is you know playing it in that in that vestibule that Fisher Big Wheel um, so you know even though today that same plaza where the the strip mall it's still there now the Fisher Big Wheel is a tractor supply the Revco is a Dollar General and the um Magic Mushroom Arcade is now some kind of like, I guess it's like a chiropractor's office or something like that. And then there used to be a grocery store and it's now Big Lots. But every time I go into that plaza, even to this day, I still think, you know, I, I just remember, you know, back back in the old times, uh, going there and doing those things. And that's the memories that I basically have of Arcade Asteroids. And the next memory would be about the home version on the Atari 2600 and that has the the memory I have of that is in 1982 for the Christmas of 1982 or excuse me 1981 Christmas of 1981 is when I received my Atari 2600 and I only asked for advent the adventure cartridge with it 
Well, on Christmas Day, I open up the Atari, and there's actually two other packages, and one is Adventure, and the other one is is the Asteroids cartridge for the uh, 2600. So, on Christmas Day of 1981, and many days after that, I would sit in my living room and play Asteroids. And so, when I think of the Atari 2600 version of Asteroids, I, I just picture in my mind sitting in my living room on the shag carpet with a wood grain TV set that was on a little roller stand. It wasn't like a big console model, but it was like, it was plastic, but it was like that simulated plastic wood grain, just like on the 2600. Had the 2600 sitting on the floor. I'm sitting there leaning up against the couch and playing Asteroids. And, and that game, I did pretty good at that game as long as I would turn off the uh, saucers because those saucers, they, I, I, they would pick me off. But I remember putting it on the easy difficulty on game one and just playing, playing, playing. And I could roll that game. I mean, I could roll it to this day. Um, but those are the memories that I have of Asteroids, um, home and arcade versions. And once again, I would like to thank you guys for the podcast that you're putting out and the stories that you're giving us. And it's really, uh, a good thing. It really brings up the memories of the old days and I like to enjoy uh, your memories and I hope you enjoy listening to mine also. Thanks for all you do. Have a good day and let's make Atari great again. Hey, thanks a lot, Jim. And you're right. Um, There's something about that 2600 asteroids that makes me want to keep going back to it again and again and your description of the tv the way it was set up and you're back against the couch was almost exactly the way steve and i sat and played asteroids too yeah that's so so cool it was a it's a great story i agree that the 2600 version of asteroids is something special about it. it's not exactly asteroids but it i mean it's not excuse me it's not exactly the coin up version but it certainly has a special place in the vertical blank Hey, Bit Jeff and Hey, Bit Steve. It's Jim, and I just wanted to shoot you guys a question um, concerning uh, storage, modern storage for the uh, Atari uh, home computers. I do not have a multi-cart or a SD card type thing. I have uh, an 800XL, and I have a 1050 disk drive currently. So I am looking to eventually get either a multi-cart or some type of SD storage. Uh, and I was just wanting to know what you guys, uh, recommend, um, and maybe what you guys use. So, uh, I would appreciate any uh, information you could give. Thanks. Hey Jim, that's a great question. Um, a couple years ago, Steve and I each purchased a 130XE and an SIO to SD, system from Lothric, Lothric. and the Lothric one is a really nice uh, piece of hardware in a case and it has LCD screen on top that that where you can pick a game to play or an ATR to load up or an EXE to load up and it also has a menu for selecting games and it's the only way to play some of the multi-disc or some of the disc games. Yeah, I really like it. Um, my only fault with it is I put too many files on the SD card, and then I, I never find exactly what I want to play. Um, the interactive menu on screen is way easier to use than the uh, than the one-line LCD. 
but really, I've had it for three years, and it it works great still. So yeah, this but the simplest way to play a, just a lot of games, especially arcade games, is with the ultimate cart or an AVG card or one of the cartridges. Now the two that we that I personally have experience with are the ultimate cart and the AVG cart. Both will play .car images, and the AVG cart can actually has limited capacity to play ATR files. Very limited, though. It has to be single-disc games, and I've been trying it, but the great thing about AVG cart is he's always making improvements to it. All you need to do is flash the BIOS, and then you get the improvements. Oh, very so cool. at some point, it could do all kinds of stuff. You never know. Uh, could let you swap out OSs, for instance. Um, anyway, so so for next time, so we're planning for our next podcast. This one's taken a long, longer time to come out than we thought, but the next podcast, we're going to do something I've wanted to do for a long time. So we have several things that we're going to try. Uh, so this will be the first podcast that is the book club. The book club. So the book club podcast will include us reading two books and then um, talking about them. The first book will be Adventure by Jamie Landino. And the second book will be Game Life by Michael W. Clune. We chose these two books because they are both have elements of the type of memoir that we like to write and talk about in Into the Vertical Blanks. So... Game Life by Michael C. Clune is completely a memoir. Um, it, I'm still in the midst of reading it, but I think it's a pretty amazing book. Uh, Jamie's book, Adventure, which is more of a history of the Atari 2600, includes many passages where Jamie talks about his own life and experiences and memoir as well. And so there's kind of that sort of the link between the two. And I can't wait to talk about them in the next podcast. And then, yeah, so I wanted to make sure that uh, we're covering a favorite game this time also, and a favorite game of Steve and I's on the Atari ST, which also came out in many other formats, including the Atari 800 and the Commodore 64 and Amiga and other ones, was Fantasy, Fantasy by SSI. Fantasy 1, 2, and 3? Now, I want to just do one this time because I want to talk about the Black okay. Knights. Let's talk about Fantasy 1. There's a lot. And, and then and one other thing. So in 1986... Or, sorry, 1985, Jeff and I sold our Atari 100 with all of the discs that include the programs that we wrote. And I've been on a quest to find a couple of them that we uploaded to BBSs um, as actual games. And we're going to talk about that next time to see whether we can locate one of those games, if it still exists in the... Uh, in the ether. In the ether somewhere. It should be somewhere. BBS has got them because that's how we got downloads for, for other games. Yep. So that's next time. Okay. Well, thank you for listening. We will see you next time. If you want to contact either one of us, you can contact Steve on Twitter at FultonBot on Twitter. You can contact me at 8BitRocket on Twitter. And you can contact the podcast at Atari underscore VB underscore pod. Thanks a lot, and until next time. Into the Virgo Black.
into the vertical blank. Next frame calculated, prepare to write new data, V blank ending.